Today on The Black Goat, it's job market season, and we're going to talk about how to get ready for the job market and what to know about it. Um, and keeping in that theme, we have a letter about how to apply for jobs. Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome to The Black Goat. I'm Sanjay Srivastava. And I'm super excited because for the first time ever, all three of us are in the same place at the same time. Hi, Alexa. Hi, Sanjay. Hi, Samin. Hi, Sanjay. The, the highs feel so weird. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like sitting here, it, like, it feels sort of like a normal thing to do over Skype, but it's like we're just sitting here staring at each other. Like I'm actually a little creeped out because we're looking at me while I'm talking in a very attentive way. Um, uh, yeah, we're we're finally in the same place at the same time. I think that's pretty cool. And we're sitting around Samin's favorite piece of furniture, a dining room table. I hate dining room tables <laughs> and dining rooms. It's not just the table. It's the whole concept of a dining room. What What is it about dining yeah, rooms? Yeah, there's, there's a deeper psychological <laughs> issue at hand here. Well, they're usually dark and like in a small cramped room and it's very formal. It's especially the formal thing that I hate. Like mm-hmm. with a low-hanging lamp like this one, which is feels like it's going to fall on your head. And then there's like a centerpiece and it's very fancy. And By the way, it, since you, this is only audio, you should know all of these elements are present and Samin's pointing to them as <laughs> she talks about them. So we're, we're basically in Samin's least comfortable place. I hate Do you just hate stuffy dining room tables, or do you hate dining room tables, period? I mean, I hate stuffy dining room tables, but I feel like my definition of stuffy, like, it doesn't have a pretty low threshold. But I do like your dining room table. But it's not, like, if it's an open floor plan where the dining room table is not in a separate room, that helps a lot. But even then, like, if it's the darker part of the room, and if, like, the table itself is formal, and the chairs are formal, or, like, there's anything about it that, like... Or I hate the feeling that like you have to ask for permission to get up from the table. That's I hate that feeling, even if it's not true. Yeah. Like they impose that feeling on the, yeah. they like change the atmosphere. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think that I dislike all of the things about formal dining rooms and dining room tables that you do mostly, um, but I like really like our dining room, and I feel like. Part of it is because it's not the same, like, kind of formal thing. Like, there's, like, a lot of light in that room, and it's, like, you know, nobody asks to get up from our dining room table. Um, but then I really like eating dinner together. Yeah, Like, but it's really nice. You can do that outside. You can do that on the couch. You can do that. But know. it's there's something about the formality that makes it nicer. That, like, you've, like... You've all decided that you're going to get together, and somebody's going to make dinner, and you're going to eat it. Terrible! No, so, so nice. So, is it any table that you sit and eat around, or is it like the four? Because, like when I was growing up, we had like the kitchen table in the kitchen, mm-hmm. and then the dining table in the dining room, which was more formal. And so, yeah. we only used the dining table when we had guests over. So, is it that kind of deal, or yeah. is it like any eating around? No, the I table? love like I love breakfast bars. Like I, when I lived in St. Louis, we had a like we. We we did our kitchen and had a table that was like against the window and then stools. So it's and so is we would it facing sit there people and eat. It was looking people yeah. in the eye. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we figured it out. Okay, I think uh, we can move on. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know when I uh, it's funny I because we had the stuffy dining like the formal dining table when I was a kid and. But the only time, the times we use it were like holidays when we had family over. Mm-hmm. So I actually have like kind of fond yeah. associations. It's funny because we don't have 
we don't we just have we don't have a dining room and kitchen kind of in our house now we just have like one yeah you know thing and it's where we have family meals so we don't have that and i'm totally fine living without it but uh yeah it is kind of funny like i think i wasn't like into formality as a kid but i think it was just when we used it kind of had these good yeah. associations and it's actually in my case it's not that i have like negative associations because I, I never grew up with a formal dining room or dining room table and maybe that's why like our house was always pretty cluttered and like nothing was fancy like the, the chairs at the dining room table have we've had them for decades and they're like falling apart and stuff like that and I like that so I think it was like it's very foreign to me like dining room tables were something like sometimes I'd go to friends houses and we had to like sit properly and not make too much noise and I don't know I think maybe the associations I have are not from my own mm-hmm. family or home yeah. but like you know unusual experiences in other places or something mm-hmm. yeah. yeah yeah do you know how that. to like properly set a table no <laughs> i don't want to know <laughs> uh, that'll be a future episode <laughs> so uh yeah so i uh we made a, a super long list of things to talk about so I think maybe should we just get into it? Maybe actually, so we're doing something a little different this time, which is uh, we usually try to have a letter that's not related to the main thing we talk about, but we got a good letter that's about job market related stuff. So what, how about we start with the letter? Yeah, let's start with the letter. And then we'll kind of get into our thing. So this is going to be like all job market all the time, which is sort of what it feels like anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe this is like warming people up for that. This is part one of a six part series <laughs> on applying to the job market. Yeah, we're, it's, actually, this is good. It's going to be, like, it's going to feel too long and exhausting, which is just, like, being on a job interview. Right. <laughs> All right. Okay, we'll start with a letter. Uh, Dear the Black Goat, I'm graduating this spring, and I'm planning to do a postdoc before going on the academic job market. I think my CV is borderline, and to be competitive on the market, I probably need a few more publications, which is why the postdoc makes sense. However, my advisor is encouraging me to apply for a few academic jobs in addition to working on securing a postdoc. I think I would like to apply for one or two jobs at dream universities, even if my CV could still be stronger, because those universities might not have more job openings for a while. I wonder if I might hurt my future chances at getting a good job by going on the job market when I'm still a little green. Will I create a weak first impression? Sincerely, not quite right banana. So, first things first, thanks for giving yourself a pseudonym. I yeah, think that yeah. I that really like when people have pseudonyms. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then I'm like, sometimes I'm like, maybe we should give people pseudonyms, but I don't think that's how it works. What what, what happens in regular advice columns? Do people give themselves pseudonyms? I or think do they... so. Okay. But if they yeah. don't, does the... That's what I'm wondering. Yeah, I yeah. Know. I don't know. I, I guess we can do whatever we want to, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you don't give yourself a pseudonym, then we have the freedom to give you whatever. We might, you know, if you, if you send us a boring letter, we might make it more interesting. No, but uh, this was a good one. So, yeah, what did, did you guys do, uh, like, apply to a few jobs a year? Did you just go gangbusters your first time out? I did something in between that. So I also was applying for jobs right out of grad school. Um, so I was keeping, I, I thought that I would end up doing a postdoc. And so that was sort of like my plan, but I decided to apply for some jobs. So I, I think I applied for 16 jobs, which I think is sort of like a moderate amount of jobs. Like I didn't like apply for every single thing that I could have applied to, but I didn't just apply to like total dream jobs. And I think, yeah, I mean, you guys, I think would know better than I would about this, but I didn't really worry that much about people seeing me applying for jobs too early and, like, thinking, like, 
oh, what an idiot or something. Mm -hmm. And like having that hurt my reputation. Um, and part of that is based on my experience on, um, on search committees. Like I've never had that reaction to someone where I've been like, you know, I've looked at an application and I've thought that they were like not qualified enough and thought it was stupid for them to apply. And then like remembered that person. And I, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I agree. So when I went on the job market and at the end of grad school, I applied everywhere. There's one place I didn't apply. That, <laughs> <laughs> so everywhere except this one place I really didn't want to live. Um, but plenty of places I didn't really want to live. Um, so I think it ended up being 40 or 50 jobs. I can't remember exactly. But like the, on the high end of like the number of jobs people apply for. Um, and I also agree that I don't think, having now been on search committees and stuff, I don't think people would necessarily remember hold it against you if you went one year when you were pretty weak and didn't get anything and then they saw your application again a year or two later I don't think that would really hurt you that's my impression um but my reaction like the part in the letter that I'm more unsure about is whether it's worth doing all that effort to put together applications get letters of rec etc to just apply selectively like I've never quite understood that like also because it's so hard to predict. So my first job was Washington University in St. Louis. I'd barely ever heard of that school before. I'd never been to St. Louis. So if I had applied selectively, that wouldn't have been one of the places I applied. But it ended up being one of my top choices after I knew more about the places I applied. So like the idea of applying selectively makes me uncomfortable. I'm not sure that I would so, advise against it, but I'm just queasy about yeah, it. Yeah, so here's here's the counter-argument, um, which... Uh, so, I, I, so, first of all, I want to say I agree that, like, remembering that this person put in this application, be like, oh, they suck, and I'm not going to give them a job next year, too. Like, that doesn't happen, right? Yeah. Like, it's just, you know, you, you either forget, or sometimes you're like, oh, this person looks good, but, but they're not quite the, ready. But that's also the majority of people who yeah. apply for jobs. Right. Right. The majority yeah. of people are not We had quite 200 ready. people yeah. last year. I don't remember, like, 196 of them. Exactly. You know, like, yeah. uh, um, I mean, I remember a lot of people. And there's some, know, who, have, have there's some who have no peer-reviewed publication. Like, I mean, that, yeah. that's rare, but you're not going to be an outlier just because you yeah. have, like, two or three And people aren't going to remember that and be like, this person's an idiot. But, yeah. so on the, so here, here's the counterpoint to the, so I agree, I think there are sort of pros and cons to be weighed, right? And the time and effort it takes to, to do the application is not trivial. Um, the to me the argument for for why like if you said you're going to apply when like sort of before you feel ready like when you're going into your postdoc, knowing that you'll be stronger a year later, but figure go for a couple dream jobs. Why wouldn't you apply broadly? To me, the the risk there. I guess, is that you get an offer from a place mm. that is kind of on the margins mm -hmm. of what you might be capable of in the future, and then you're in this really awkward position of, you're, you're in a really tough personal decision. You have to decide, like, you know, do I take this job that, like, is better than no job, but I don't know if I could get a better job, and of course there's a lot of uncertainty around that. Mm. Um, and then also it can be a little awkward to, like, turn, I mean, this isn't, this isn't the worst thing in the world either, but it can feel a little awkward to turn down a job yeah. in favor of nothing. And I, I don't think most, I think if you said like, I really want to stick with my postdoc, most people would sort of understand. But I also think there's a little bit of awkwardness around you've applied for a job, you've gone for an interview, yeah. you, they gave you the offer, they're excited about you. And then you go, no, yeah, thanks. I'm, right. I'm not going to take a job. So I think it depends what you mean by dream job. So if by dream job, you mean I have like 
people who depend on me who live on the West Coast and therefore I literally have to stay on the West Coast or something like that, then yes, applying selectively makes a lot of sense to me. But if dream job is like, I've never visited this place, but it, I've always had it in my mind as the kind of place I'd love, as the specific place I'd love to work, yeah. then I wouldn't ba- apply selectively based on that because I think it's super, super hard to predict which departments are going to be a good fit, which ones are going to be excited to work at until you've visited. Yeah. And even then, I think it's hard to predict. But I think if you're being selective based on what you think you'll like, I wouldn't be selective. If you're being selective based on objective, real constraints that would factor into whether you would take the job or not, then yeah, Yeah. be selective. Yeah, Yeah, I think, I I mean, I really like that is the number one thing that I tell people when they're asking me about job stuff is to the, to whatever extent you can, um, be pretty open-minded about like what you would be willing to like apply to. Um, and that's because, so first of all, like, don't not apply to somewhere because you think that, like, you could never get a job there. Um, and maybe also don't not apply to a place because, like, you don't really know much about that place. You think you might not like to live there. Uh, because, like Samin says, I think that we're really bad at knowing. I mean, we know basically nothing about the schools that we're applying to usually, right? Mm-hmm. And so... Like, first of all, I think we're bad at, you know, predicting what we would like anyway, but especially with so little information. So I think that, yeah, it's, it's true that you could be in a situation like you described, Sanjay, where you get an offer somewhere and it's not everything that you want it to be. And then you're faced with, like, a tough decision about whether you want to sort of, like, take the risk of, um, you know, trying again later or take the sure thing now. Um, but I think it's hard to know that you'll be even in that position at the beginning when you're just applying. You might know that like once you've gone on an interview and you've seen the place and you're like, okay, this is not ideal for me. It's not going to be the lab that I want or whatever. But to know that like at the very beginning, maybe you know some things, maybe you know you want to be like a certain sort of category of university or yeah, you want to be in a certain like geographical region or whatever. Um, But beyond those things, I think, yeah, it's really hard to know what you're going to like. Yeah, I think think maybe... The difference that for me is, is it sort of up in the air because you don't have a lot of information? And then I'd say go. Like, you're not familiar with the city or whatever. You don't know the specific people, but it's like the kind of place you'd like to be and that Mm -hmm. sort of thing. And I'd say don't take yourself out of the running. If it's on the margins because of information you do have, you're Mm -hmm. like, oh, I've visited this place and and it would be, like, tough for me to live there. Mm -hmm. Or, like, I know, like, you know, this... Like, they don't have, you know, they don't have the resources for the kind of, you know, I'm an MRI person and they don't have an MRI and I would take a non-MRI job if, you know, I had to, but then I'd say, like, you know, those are good reasons to take yourself out. But I I think the one thing, this is true, so this is getting beyond the letter, but I think this is super important, and I've seen people do this before and it drives me up the wall, is don't take yourself out of the running because you think you won't get a job that yeah. you want. Mm-hmm. Like that's yeah. their job is yeah. to take, like, I, it's fine if it's like, you know, they, if it's like something objective about the job, they're looking for a cognitive neuroscientist and I'm a social cognition person. And it's silly to think that like, just because they both have cognitive, like, okay, that's fine, whatever. But like, if it's just like, Oh, they would never hire me. Like, fuck that shit go (laughs) like apply let them make that decision yeah i mean this leads into i think one of the earliest questions you have to ask yourself in the job market so maybe 
I don't know, I'm moving away from the letter now, but I think one of the first decisions is what categories of jobs do you want to apply for? So, like, are you interested in just R1? Are you interested in just mm-hmm. liberal arts? Are you interested in R2, which I don't know exactly how to define that, but, like, places without a PhD program maybe, but with, like, master's programs or some research. Um, but, yeah. 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 Um, so I think that's some that's a conversation I've had with a lot of students and what I what I try to figure out is it kind of what you're talking about there like if they're saying like I I've, I've mentored some students who um decided not to apply for R1 jobs and I have a long conversation with them where if I think that they are they would be capable and successful in an R1 job I try to figure out is this a choice because of your preferences or because of what you want or is this that you're taking yourself out of the running because you think you're not good enough and if it's the latter I want to try to convince them if I believe that you know, if it, if I can be honest, convince them that that's, yeah, that's not, they don't need to make that decision. The search committees will make that decision for them if that's true. But I can also understand that, you know, another factor is like deciding how much rejection you can take. And so are you willing to do things that are like reach things? But again, I would go with what Sanjay said and say like, rejection is going to come anyway. And so like taking yeah. yourself out because you're afraid that it's, you're going to look silly or people are going to think, who do you think you are or whatever? I mean, you should see some of the applications in the pools, that, yeah. and nobody ever thinks that. Everybody understands. Like, we get applications from people way out in very, very different subfields for social personality searches, and I don't think, how could they, how dare they? I think, oh, they must really want to live in Davis. That's interesting that they were, you know, they threw in their application, yeah. but... So so maybe let's, just to sort of close out the letter, because I think we're moving mm-hmm. on to, to other things. I, it seems like the consensus is, to our letter writer, uh, um, like, it's what you know applying quote unquote selectively is good but be sort of be open about selective like don't you know like if you're going to go to all the effort um you know apply to like any job that looks that you think there's a decent chance you could fall in love with not just the ones that you're absolutely sure about um uh, i would say even lower than decent chance but yeah, yeah, maybe it's just semantics at this yeah. point. But I think a lot of people think they wouldn't want to live in so many places or mm-hmm. they wouldn't yeah. want jobs that they've never heard of or things like that. There's Now that I've gone to like departments and given talks, there's so many departments I'd never heard of that I go and give a talk and spend a day or two with them. And I think this is awesome. Mm-hmm. Like, I could totally yeah. imagine being happy here. Mm-hmm. And and cities too, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I had a, a, there was a graduate student when I started who, you know, ended up at a job in Salt Lake City and she loves Salt Lake City, and it's, you know, people have these, like, stereotypes about Utah, and uh, she does not fit the stereotype, but she loves it there. And, you know, anyway, so so I think a lot of times if it's, like, a place you've never visited for an extended period of time or whatever. But anyway, so let's, why don't we just get into, so <laughs> we're going to kind of go through all the, the stages of uh, um, getting ready for jobs. And, uh, yeah, I think the, should we talk about applications? Yeah. So can we, I'd be curious to hear you guys' thoughts about even the very pre-getting your application ready, deciding what, what type of job you should yeah, be yeah. applying for. Right, because that affects how you write for. your application. Yeah. So like, how should a grad student who is somewhat undecided about whether they should go for an R1 or a master's institution or liberal arts or a community college or, you know, how do they decide which of those, like, so first of all, you don't have to pick just one, right? You could apply yeah. for multiple categories. How do you decide which categories? Yeah. I would say that also part of the back, background of this... Yeah, it's so hard, right? Because there, So there's also, like, non-academic jobs. Right. Is that something you'd want to do? Um, because I think in some ways that can... If you're like, I'd be totally happy to get a non-academic job, too, then that lets you 
that makes you approach the academic job market differently, right? You can, yeah. you, like, your, you know, your sort of best alternative is, you know, if then you say, like, what's my best alternative and anything below that, I'll, I'll sort of cut off the list. Maybe we should bracket off, like, talk a little bit about what e- we each have experience with. And so, so like, yeah. we're, we're only talking about psych. We're, we all <laughs> only have experience in North America, although I've interviewed in other countries. Um, and... We're all academics. We're, we're all at R one. We're all at R one. Yeah, yeah. But we've mentored students who've gone to non R one. Yeah. But so uh, let's put aside non academic jobs yeah, for yeah. this podcast. No, no. It's I don't. Yeah. But yeah, just, I think it's important to it's say it's part of the decision yeah, process. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no. I don't. We're not going to talk about how to prepare for those. But yeah, um, yeah I mean, I think the you know, it's really t- I, I find it tough talking to students because of the thing that we we were just talking about, where sometimes it's hard to know mm-hmm. if there there is this like. You know, people have this idea that like R ones are higher prestige, which I think is something that should be questioned mm-hmm. a lot. But mm-hmm. uh, people have this idea; they're certainly very selective, and so people sometimes it's hard to tell if someone's like, "I don't want that kind of job because I don't want it," versus they're sort of talking themselves out of it mm-hmm. because you know they don't think they're qualified when somebody else does. And so I'd say to a grad student you know, be open to being talked into things by the people that know you and your work. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, then again, there are some people who they really love teaching and they want to be at a place where that's most of the work that they do. Mm-hmm. And that's, and, and there are some super selective places that focus on teaching. And so I, I would say like the first thing is like, what do you actually like doing? Yeah, totally. So I think that, yeah, I don't know. I'm, my experience was that, uh, so first of all, when I was about to go on the job market, I basically thought that there was like no chance that I would get a job. And I was sort of like already, um, preparing myself to like consider non-academic jobs because I just like, I found the job market, the academic job market so intimidating. And I didn't know, like I had been on as a graduate student, I had been on a search committee at the university of Toronto. Um, and just, like, seeing the kinds of people who, like, applied there and got jobs, I was like, forget it. Like, (laughs) I'll just just choose something else. Um, So, yeah. And and I also think that, like, grad school is, you know, even when you have, like, a pretty open-minded advisor, it's kind of like a process of being, like, brainwashed into thinking that you, like, an academic job is, like, the pinnacle and you should sacrifice everything else to get one. So I had, like, been through that brainwashing process, and I think that I made my um, my decision about where to apply based on that and not, like, not in a very informed way. I basically knew nothing about teaching. I had had, like, I had co-taught, like, a seminar class, and that was it. So I had no idea. And now teaching is, like, very, very important to me, but I didn't make um, my job application decisions based on that at all. Um so yeah, I, I based like based it on you know like what I had told was like a good kind of job to get, um, and that meant that I ended up like, you know, getting a job in Alabama when I was living in Toronto, and like leaving everything that I had known <laughs> to move to Alabama for an academic job, and like I don't have any regrets about that. Like I really like I love my job, and so like I know what you guys mean when you talk about like if somebody seems to like be a little bit insecure and you want to encourage them because you think they should be more secure than they are to pursue an academic job. Like I think academic jobs are really like, well, like 
you know, embarrassingly nice jobs to have. Um, but yeah, then at the same time, you know, like you don't have to sacrifice everything you have to like move to a crazy place and like have an academic job. Like you should consider alternatives. Yeah. So with the caveat that I think absolutely we should support people who don't want academic jobs or don't want R1 academic jobs. I will also say, I think there's a misconception that all R1 jobs are cutthroat, super competitive. It's really hard to get tenure. So I think some people select out because they don't want that. And I think that's a misconception. I'm sure there are some R1 jobs like that, but there are also a lot of R1 jobs where the fact, the statistics are that the vast, vast, majority of people once you're on the tenure track they get tenure where people are supportive and aren't trying to cut you down and things like that yeah so and i'm actually i'd be curious to see stats on the day-to-day life of people at r1 versus master's granting versus community college versus whatever i'm not sure that life is more stressful as an r1 tenure track professor and i would maybe even guess that it might be less stressful than some other types of academic jobs so i think if if you're hesitating about r1 because you think that it's going to be way more stressful than other types of academic jobs, I think that's something to question. I'm not saying it's yeah. wrong, but... I agree. Yeah, I, I agree, too. I, I think students that love doing research, love the science part, and, you know, I've seen this before, and they, they say, like, yeah, but being a professor looks so stressful, and it's... Yeah, I think uh, um, they're... they're one, they might be overestimating how stressful it is. Two, they might be underestimating yeah. how much their capabilities will grow and with the job. And how stressful other jobs are. Yeah, mm-hmm. and how stressful other... So so I think this is a dynamic that I also see with, like, rigor. Like, people will mm-hmm. say things about industry that, like, oh, they're so much more rigorous because they're answering real applied questions. And mm-hmm. <laughs> you talk to people who've worked in industry and they're like, nope. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And I think the same is true of stress. It's like, oh, I would love to have a nine-to-five job. And it's like, look... If you have a PhD and you're applying to, like, the kind of professional jobs that have a PhD, they're all going to be stressful jobs. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, there's pros and cons to everything. I'm not saying they're the same. But, like, you know, there. yeah, I think the comparison, it's like, it sort of looks like the grass is greener. But, uh, yeah, so so I think it's worth trying. I mean, I think the, the good reasons to, to sort of, like, either rule out specific jobs or academia or a whole, as a whole... A lot of them have to do with, you know, what I see people going through is the sort of work-family balance kinds of issues, and, and in particular, having a, you know, you have to be willing to move, typically, for an academic job. Um, a lot of people have partners that aren't movable, and that's something that I think is a structural problem in academia. Mm-hmm. I think it affects women more than men mm-hmm. a lot of times. Um, and to me, that's like, you know, an entirely legitimate reason is... Like, I want to have, you know, I have a partner and, and I, you know, and they, their job brings constraints or whatever. Um, and that, that's a good reason to consider either sort of having a geographic focus in your academic job search or being super selective or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, what's our next topic within okay, the application? So basically, yeah, we have yes. <laughs> We're halfway through the show. Yeah. Okay, lightning round. Lightning. Applications. Um... Ask your letter writers early. Make it easy for your letter writers to say no if it's not like someone you've worked with closely. Make it easy for your letter writers to write your letter. Like send them a list of bullet points and accomplishments. Don't don't count on them to remember things, saying as someone who's a little forgetful. <laughs> and don't count on them to sort of notice things from picking through your CV. Like, uh, um, you know, I mean, it feels a little weird to just like send an email 
cold call to be like, hey, you know, third letter writer, here's my list of accomplishments. But I think you can just say like, hey, would it help for me to sort of send you some some highlights of accomplishments or things I'm trying to emphasize? I always appreciate that when I'm writing letters. Mm-hmm. And if there are things, mitigating whoa, factors... Whoa, whoa, it's not your turn. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, if there are like mitigating factors, things that happen to you or like context that uh, like especially negative things sometimes it's better if the letter writer mentions it than coming from you especially if it's yeah. academic related but even if it's not so if you have a letter writer that you're close enough to that you're willing to talk to them about that kind of thing and they offer to put in the letter that might help a lot yeah i think yeah the it can it a letter writer has to have at least a moderate amount of tact and skills you you want to you know make sure you're sort of picking the right person but absolutely sometimes mitigating factors can sound kind of like you're apologizing for yourself if you mention them but that can actually you know like this person had this project that you know this thing totally went wrong but here's why it's actually like it says something super good about them mm-hmm. um that's something that a, a reasonably skilled letter writer can mm-hmm. turn into a plus a lot better than a sort of Mm-hmm. the person can on their own behalf. Mm-hmm. Although it, it helps to have a little bit from both sides to sort of, yeah, but I think that's some place that letter writers can really help. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really know what advice to give people about research and teaching statements other than, and, you know, maybe maybe I'm not representative, but being on search committees, like, uh, I often skim these things. So, like, I see people who, like, basically kind of like everything you need to know is within the first paragraph. Um, and also I see people like use subheadings and bold things. And I think that stuff is pretty effective. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what else to start with a sentence, kind of like telling people what box to put you in. And I know that sucks because some people don't fit in a box, but you know, we have, we have, we think of our field in terms of like maybe the 30 different pre-conferences at SPSB in the case of social personalities. So give them some idea of like, you would be going to this and this pre-conference, but not in that language, but help them figure out like, where you fit in that landscape. Yeah. I think also just for for research statements, my experience was that writing my research statement was one of the hardest things I've ever written. And I, I try to tell students that so that they're prepared because I think one of the things is, you know, for some people it might, this isn't the case. Some people are just like, they're on a straight line, a straight programmatic line all the way through graduate school yeah. and they kind of know what they're doing. But that's I think that's the minority. I think a lot of people... You know, this was certainly true of me. I worked on what I was interested in, and then I was like, "What the fuck is the common thread?" It turns out the common thread was me. Um, uh, But then that becomes that's like that's why it was hard. Is the common thread is me, and so it Mm -hmm. turned into this whole like, "Who am I?" kind of experience, Mm -hmm. and having these like moments of despair and whatever. And so I think the like the task of writing everything into one coherent narrative feels Mm -hmm. daunting. And what I would say to people is, if you feel that way. That is totally normal, and that's not a sign that you're not cut out for a yeah, job or whatever. That's a really good time to remind yourself about imposter syndrome because, like, I, I think everybody or 95% of people find writing research statements and, like, putting together your CV and your application materials, yeah, like, a, it, it's easy to feel insecure, right? Like, it's easy to like look at your number of publications and imagine that there are like lots of other people who have more and chances are for most people that's true right there are going to be more people out there who um have like you know longer CVs and stuff like that um and i think 
yeah, I think you're right that most people struggle with sort of like coming up with that coherent narrative about their research and struggle with like, you know, um, finding a way to convince other people that it's like meaningful and important. Like, I I don't think it's very common for people to just find it easy to to write up that narrative. Yeah, I feel like when people try to write research statements and they realize they don't have that thread, then they like I've heard people say like, you know, I just I didn't go into grad school thinking I'm going to do study one, then study two, then study three, and here and I was like, nobody did, <laughs> right? Like there's yeah. this idea that other people have been programmatic all along or whatever. Many people. Yeah, only, like, the the narrative that goes into the research statement is completely retrospective and post-talk. Yeah. It's not what you had in mind all along when you were deciding what to study. Yes. I mean, do you want to tell the story? This is a little bit later in the process, but I think it's the same kind of thing. Do you want to tell the story of how you named your lab? I don't remember the story of how I named my lab. Didn't I? You've told this story? Okay, I'm going to tell Samin's story. <laughs> Hi, my name is Samin, and uh, when I was trying to decide what to name my lab, I had to ask everybody what to call my lab. Yeah, so actually, I think it's a slightly different story. Well... Okay, maybe I've just re-narrated Yeah, I'm sure that's true. I do yeah. that with everything, though, so yeah. it's not specific to naming my lab. I always ask other people what I should do. But when I, I remember when I was in grad school, like, towards the end, like, maybe my fifth year, um, my friend Matthias uh, came up to me in the hallway, and he's like, oh, Samin, I just talked to an undergrad who's interested in studying self-other perception, and so I told them they should come talk to you, because that's what you do. And I was like, I think I was on the job market already, and I was like, <laughs> oh, is that what I do? Oh, yeah, that is what I do. Yeah. And ironically, I had needed a peer report to tell me that what I study is differences between how people see themselves and how others see them. Yeah. Um, what do you yeah, What do you do if you're trying to name your lab, and then when people come up to you to like comment on what you research, they're like, wait. What do you research, Alexa? <laughs> <laughs> That's why my lab does not have a name. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Alexa lab. Yeah, but no, I think like asking other people, yeah. how do they see what you do? Yeah. That's like a totally legit thing to do with a research statement, right? Like yeah. your mentors, yeah. like mm-hmm. ask them, like if they're going to tell somebody what you do, what would they say? Because yeah, yeah. a lot of times they know those boxes really well because mm-hmm. they've been around yes, a long time. That helps. And they also they can kind of see the big picture. Yeah, and I do think there's something about like being the person who is doing the research that makes it seem like a lot more like scattered and random mm-hmm. than it might to somebody else. Like, mm-hmm. like especially the further you go outside of psychology, right? Like if you ask like, you know, a friend who is in a different field, like what did you study? I mean, yeah. to them it's going to seem much more coherent and yeah. narrow and programmatic than it seems to you. So when I was applying to jobs, in grad school I worked with Sam Gosling, and I was his first grad student, so when I came in, he still had some animal personality stuff going on, and I worked on that, and then my own work was on self-knowledge, and so I had to write a research statement tying together animal personality and self-knowledge, which you you can't, because like you can't study <laughs> self-knowledge in non-human animals, it's pretty tough to do, and so I was like, what am I going to do, what am I going to do, and this completely post hoc narrative came up, which I'm now in love with, and it's like my story of how I came to study self-knowledge, which is that to study personality in non-human animals, you can't can't use self-reports. So you have to use observer reports, mm. behavior, peer reports, etc. And so I learned how to use those tools, which gave me the tools I needed to then study self-knowledge. Because if you want to study self-knowledge, you have to mm-hmm. compare what people say about themselves to non-self-report measures of what mm-hmm. they're like. So I had this like really cool story about how, why non-human personality research led yeah. me to study self-knowledge in humans. And then <laughs> Actually, I started believing it. <laughs> it's, yeah. So something that I tell people all the time when I talk about like my, basically like my progress through academia generally, but also like, you know, choosing to go to grad school or like, you know, when people, when people ask me like why I have the job that I have or why I'm a social psychologist, I'm I'm sure I've told you this, but what I tell them the story about like being at SIPS, um, with you, CISP, 
CISP. <laughs> summer Institute the, the, the in Social and Personality one. Psychology. Yes. Um, with Back you then, and, it didn't have personality. <laughs> yeah, right. With you and David Dunning, and you guys had us do an activity where you assigned us a profession, um, and then you had us give an explanation for how we had come to be that profession, like using only factual information, except for, of course, the fact that um, we had that profession because I was just like randomly mm-hmm. chosen. Um, and I got like video game designer or something. Mm-hmm. And I came up with like a pretty plausible story for why I became a video game designer. Like I was like, maybe I should be a video game <laughs> You know, so like when I was like a kid, I had like saved up money. I used to subscribe to Nintendo Power Magazine. Like I saved up money to buy <laughs> so a All these Super things Nintendo. are true. Yeah, yeah, all these things are true. I had a safe that the code was 115. Um, because a, a Super Nintendo cost $115, and I was trying to save up that. So, like, I really did like video games and stuff like that. Um, and so, yeah, uh, I guess, like, yeah, the moral of the story is that it's easy to come up with post-talk narratives, and probably whatever I'm going to tell you in response to your question about why I'm a social psychologist is, like, a post-talk narrative. Um, so... Yeah, so are there other things in the application, like, so one thing that Oregon does is, and I think more departments are starting to do these, is a diversity statement. Mm-hmm. And what I would say to people is take those seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly if you're applying to Oregon. By the way, we have three jobs this year. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the yeah, I think taking everything seriously. If, they, if someone asks for something, take it seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I think at some schools it's optional, and I think it's worth doing even yeah. if it's optional. Yeah. Teaching statements, I would say take those seriously too. And especially if you, like, everybody is trained at a research institution because that's where you get your PhD. And if you're applying to a teaching university, uh, probably you'll take it, the teaching stuff seriously. Make sure your letter writers know that too. Like, when I write letters for students applying to teaching institutions, you know, I'll often have my letter where I've got like a section about research, a section about teaching. Um, and if they tell me they're applying to a teaching university, I'll usually invert those sections. So in my letter, I talk about teaching first because I know that that's what they care the most yeah. about. And I'll sort of make say more about teaching and less about research mm-hmm. and vice versa. Um, yeah. Yeah, from what I've heard, like oh, many, many parts of your application need to be tailored quite differently for these different categories of jobs. So I would get material, get sample materials from people who've successfully yeah. gotten each category of job that you're applying for. And if you can, talk to them. Talk to people who've been on search committees. So I know people who've applied for like master's granting departments and gotten really, really, really helpful advice from people who are at that type of institution who've been on search committees. And it was stuff I never would have thought of. So. Yeah get as much advice and, and feedback as you can. If people are willing to look at your materials, that would be great. Mm-hmm. We should, yeah, we should probably move on. Yeah. Just one one thing briefly uh, I'm curious your guys' thoughts about is just generally the topic of tailoring applications. So my I'm, my sort of feeling on that is, like, it's, it's definitely worth it to tailor for categories of jobs, um, but you don't necessarily have to, like, customize your research statement for each job you're applying to. I think that's way too much work. I mean... Yeah, I, that is a ton of work. I think what I did is probably typical, um, where, like, I would... I think I had, like, a couple of lines. I mean, you have a cover letter, and, of course, you tailor that, you know, to talk about the university that you're going to, but I had a couple of lines in my research statement that I tailored, and I was applying to all the same category of jobs, basically. So I think I had, like, lines about, like, who I would be interested in working with and how my research could overlap with theirs. Mm -hmm. Um, But it wasn't 
I didn't change my research statement other than that between jobs. Yeah, I think I changed like if I describe myself as a personality and social psychologist or a social and personality psychologist. Yeah, yeah I was gonna say <laughs> I had like three slightly different versions for slightly different categories of yeah. But the cover letter, so especially places in less desirable locations, if you have a particular reason that you are interested in living there, I would mention that in I cover agree. letters. Like if you have family in that town yeah. or things like that. Places in less desirable locations are very self conscious about whether or not people would actually yeah. move there. Um, so if you, but only if it's like something that really sets you apart from other people, then it's worth mentioning. Yeah. yeah. And if you're not bluffing. Yeah. 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 Right. 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 So, so let's talk about clothing. Okay. Um, uh, so I, I wrote a blog post a few years ago about like preparing for the, actually quite a few years ago about preparing for the job market. And there was, uh, I have a section there about clothing. There was an interesting Twitter thread recently. I would write that section. I would give the same advice, but bracketed very differently nowadays, mm-hmm. or very similar advice, but bracketed differently. The bracketing is that what you wear should not matter. And if anybody is on a search committee and listening, don't fucking talk about whether someone wore pantyhose, please. <laughs> um, which, thank God, has never happened at any search I've personally been involved about, but I've heard of it happening elsewhere, and it's just, no, don't do that. Um, yeah, so what I would say about clothing is, you know, unfortunately, clothing has all these sort of connections to gender identity and race and social class and all these yeah. other things, and uh, it's it's not something it's something that everyone has to make a decision about whether they're going to sort of go along with certain conventions or not um i think it's helpful to know the conventions uh um and you know so i can tell you the conventions if you're a man <laughs> which because they they don't change as much and i know them which is uh i think nowadays it's still it, I think things have gotten even more casual since I applied for jobs, but I think a suit is totally a legit thing to have. Um, if you're going to wear a suit, yeah. uh, don't wear a crazy suit. Um, uh, or a sport coat and slacks is also a thing to have. Yeah. The general thing I'd say, I, we can't get into like all kinds of fashion stuff, but kind of do a little bit of research. There's now tons of sites on the internet and prepare in advance. Cause getting that kind if you've never bought a suit or slacks or anything before, you have to take them to a tailor. It takes a while to find them. Don't wait till you get a job application or a job interview and they want to fly you out in a week. And you have to spend a week looking for clothes instead of preparing for the interview. Uh, I went to suit shopping with a guy who was going on the job market. And when um, he told the person working at the store that he, he needed a suit for a job interview, the suits the guy was recommending were way, way too formal. So, like, having been on search committees and stuff, I, I was able to say, like, hey, maybe go on the less formal end of all the things yeah. they're recommending. Because people who work in stores that sell you suits don't understand the difference between an academic job interview yeah. and a regular job interview. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, it's not I the end a, of the world if you dress too. No, far. no, but yeah, I, I, I had salespeople direct me wrong too. Mm-hmm. So I'd say like, find out. I mean, I think for men, uh, plain Navy or plain gray are the classics. I had a salesman once sell me a pinstripe suit, uh, which was the stupidest thing in the world mm-hmm. because that's like, banking industry and no one else wears pinstripe suits and I thank god I figured out that I shouldn't wear it on my job but I wasted a shitload of money on the suit that I hardly ever wore um damn yeah I know I am actually feeling a little bit bad for you it was yeah it was like fucking like the guy was he just didn't understand he was like yeah sure like this is a great suit this is like a business suit it's like he just didn't the salesman I don't think he was like trying to rip me off Um, and I didn't know anything and this was like before the internet or before there were like lots of fashion sites on the internet so I hadn't done any research so I took his advice 
Anyway, what 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 are your thoughts about women's clothing? Because I, I think that's so much more complicated. I think the most important thing is be comfortable. And I mean, you do have to make an effort. Like, I can't dress the way I dress every day on a job interview. That would not be okay. <laughs> so, but within the realm of like dress clothes for women, whatever you're comfortable in, comfort matters so much because you're going to have to, you're going to be doing Q&A after your talk and people are going to be like, you know, asking you questions and you have to think on your feet and blah, blah. And if you're worried about whether your bra is showing or like your pantyhose are itchy yeah. or you have blisters on your feet or whatever, it's going to be much, much harder to think on your feet and answer those questions. So, I mean, for me, there's no dress clothes that are comfortable. So I was uncomfortable anyway, but pants were way better for me than a skirt. So I went with pants. Also blister band-aids because I never wear dress shoes. So I got tons of blisters, but the blister band-aids helped a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I, I mean, I would give similar advice. It's hard for me I, I feel like there are, like, appropriate clothing categories. Like, I don't know. Well, I don't know what the name yeah, of the clothing category is. Slacks and a button-down shirt or blouse or, like, a sports coat or blazer. or Not sports coat, I guess, for women, but blazer um, helps make anything Blazers, slightly more yeah, formal. Yeah, wear a blazer. Yeah, that's <laughs> my advice. Because really nice. I, I think, like, yeah, being comfortable, but also, like... Um, I thought that, like, shopping for clothes to wear in my interview was kind of fun. It was, like, kind of a category of clothing that I had never really worn before. And then, like, yeah, like, I think it was the first time I'd ever bought a blazer. Mm. And I was like, this is cool. Like, I look like a professional. And so, like, I was comfortable, but I also, like, felt like, you mm. know, like, mm-hmm. I felt confident. Yeah. And, and that was, like, fun to shop for clothes for that purpose. And for some women, that'll be skirts. And for some women, that'll be yeah. I What I did, same thing as naming my lab, I brought friends with me who I trusted their sense and also they knew me really well. Mm-hmm. And I literally let them pick. Like there were things, like my one, I don't know if you guys have seen it, my blue tank top v-neck shirt, which was what I wore, I think on my original job interviews maybe, but it's still like when I have to dress up, I wear that thing. <laughs> when my friend picked it out, I was like, no way. It's like bright blue. I was like, I would never wear that, blah, blah. And mm-hmm. they insisted and it's super comfortable and it's like distinctive enough that then I can wear it with boring yeah. old everything else and it's right. still like, whatever. So anyway, friends can be super, super helpful for yeah. that kind of thing too. I think, I can't remember if we've talked about this before, but you know, what you said at the beginning, Sanjay, about like people shouldn't care about this, but like you still, you know, sort of like have to consider it i i have seen people who dress very unconventionally for job interviews like really really casually like wearing jeans and stuff like that and it like it doesn't go over well and in a perfect world maybe it would but it communicates i yeah i can't remember if we talked about it. it communicates one of at least two things one is that you don't care that much and another is that, like, you don't know the norms, and neither one of those things is something you want to communicate on a job interview. Yeah. Or you think you're such hot shit that you can get away with it. Ugh, yeah. So don't wear jeans, don't wear sneakers, or, or flip-flops, or Birkenstocks, or Vibram five-finger shoes. <laughs> didn't, <laughs> Just don't wear those ever didn't that for happen? anything. Yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, moving on. Uh, interviews. So you've, you get the phone call. You're some this search committee chair calls you up, says we'd like to have you come out for an interview. What do you do? I, I'd say the first thing is that person is your kind of point of contact and uh-huh. use them for information. So, you know, one of the things I chaired a search committee last year that I tried to do was to sort of proactively think through the things that people wouldn't necessarily all know and tell them, but also like when I was a search committee chair, I really wanted the people, if they weren't sure about something, to ask me, whether it's, like, what are the norms for the talk, or, like, how long should I go, or, yeah. you know, 
um, you know, just what's going to happen on my visit or things like what that. What if they asked you how many people are you interviewing? Um, I would I would tell them. I, that might have even happened. I'm not sure, but uh, yeah, I would I would tell them how many. I obviously wouldn't tell them names. Ooh, yeah. um, but uh, I generally yeah. wouldn't ask that kind of thing, though. Like, yeah. I, I don't know. No, I don't think you should ask that. Yeah. But I think, yeah, right. Because that's sort of, yeah. Yeah. But because like there are people who wouldn't want to answer it, and it, yeah. it could be awkward. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing is, but I would be writing your job talk and prepare and practicing it well before anybody yes. calls you for job interviews. Yes. So I practiced my job talk 19 times before my first interview, which was maybe a bit excessive in retrospect. Like, I, I don't think I would have my grad students do that now, but it was really, really helpful for me. That was yeah. a piece of advice that you gave me was to yeah. practice my job talk many, 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 many times. Yeah. And I think I think it was huge. The, and the other thing is that your actual job talk, at least for me and many people I know, will go way better than your practice talks. It's yeah. so much harder to give a job talk to people who know you, oh, who yeah. like whatever. I mean, I gave it to my roommates and my brother and blah, blah, and, you know, it, and even to my advisor or to my lab mates. It just feels so much more awkward than the real thing, so don't freak out if yeah. it doesn't go well in the practice. Yeah, my, my first practice job talk almost made me not want to apply oh, for man, jobs. It went so I was doing a postdoc, so I was new, and they like said I could have a brown bag slot. And uh-huh. so it's like all these people I didn't know. So it wasn't like my mm. people, you know, mm. like, and I gave such a shitty talk. Mm. I, by the way, if anyone's listening who was at that talk, I'm sorry. It was, <laughs> it was just, it was incoherent. It was all over the place. And I literally walked out feeling like I'd bombed it so badly. I was like, I shouldn't apply for jobs. Yeah. Um, so just go into it knowing that like, it's going to take some iterations. It's kind of similar to the research statement in that like, you're going to be trying to like, it's probably the first time you've given like a, you know, 45 minute talk. If you're a graduate student mm-hmm. or a postdoc, you've probably never given a keynote or anything like mm-hmm. that. Um, how do you like fit everything in, make it all make sense, etc. cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. So, so practice many times. I'd also say like, take practice seriously. Mm-hmm. Like don't, don't like, I see people do this sometimes where they like, they act like they're not going to take it seriously and they tell everyone not to take it seriously mm-hmm. as a way of kind of not having the stakes feel too high. Mm-hmm. And I sort of, I get the psychological need to like not make it feel high stakes, but it's practice it. dress rehearsal, pra- you know, yeah. like don't, you know, like it's fine for like a first run through to just get content feedback. But at some point you got to do a dress rehearsal I and tell people to ask you questions at the end. Don't stop the dress rehearsal until people have asked you questions in the style of job talk Q&A. Yeah. I think there's a lot to be said for the process of like really practicing your job talk and, and taking it really seriously. One is that like I, the practice makes your talk go so much better. Mm -hmm. Um, like, like you said, the first couple of practice talks, one of which I gave to Samin in a hotel room, which was the worst talk I've ever given. And I was like (laughs) literally shaking. Um, I gave two talks in my department, like one to our sort of area and then one to some faculty who couldn't come to that. Um, I videotaped myself and never watched it, but (laughs) but I like pretended that I was going to do that. And like, yeah, I practiced it so many times. Then so the practice itself obviously makes your talk go more smoothly. It makes you so much more comfortable when you're doing it. But also I think the whole process like boosts your confidence and makes you take yourself more seriously. And I think that's a good, um, a good mindset to be in when you're on a job interview. Yeah. And I, I'd say uh, some good advice that I got was to... So you don't write out the whole talk because you can't write out 45 no. minutes. But uh, I got really good advice to write full text the first like two minutes yes. of it yeah, and cool. have it with you and it's not because you'll use it 
um, like you, you, like I didn't use it. I didn't stand there reading off of it. But having done that and practiced that, one, made it easier to get started, and two, just knowing I had it there mm-hmm. helped ease some of my nervousness. Because kind of once you get into the zone, you're okay, but it's just like having that there. And certainly if you need to do, to use it, you can, or you can look down at it or whatever. Um, but I, I found that to be really helpful. Yeah, and practicing, the more you practice, the more chances are that something will malfunction and being able to know, to practice how to handle that. So yeah. at my job talk at Davis, the PowerPoint wasn't working for the first whatever, and I had to like kind mm-hmm. of stand there and talk to people while they were trying to fix it. Also, don't count on being able to use your own laptop. So like I now have become very dependent on preview mode, being able to see what slide is next. Mm-hmm. But they may not let you use your own laptop and their computer might not have preview mode. So try to get to the point where you're comfortable. Even if you can't see your notes, you can't see the next slide, um, which requires a ton and ton of practice. Yeah. Yeah. And also like remind yourself. uh, So this was, so the, the blog post that I wrote like seven years ago was based on like something that I'd written before I had a blog that I just passed around to friends, which was just like stuff I kind of figured out while I was on the job market. And I had this, this funny thing happened where I had passed it to a friend and then they had passed it to one of their students and their students interviewed at Oregon. Um, And so one piece of advice I had in there was to write, be energetic halfway through (laughs) your talk, which I actually got from Sam Gosling. Mm. Um, Because even (laughs) though you're like pumped up, uh, you're also like 45 minutes is a long time to give Mm -hmm. a talk and you can kind of flatten out in the middle. So it was hilarious because this person who eventually got the job at Oregon um, uh, we were having our meeting and he like showed me the part in his job talk where he'd written be energetic <laughs> and he's like, uh, and it was this funny moment, but, uh, yeah. I was one more thing about practicing job talks. My very last practice and my 19th practice before my first interview, um, Jamie Pennebaker, who was a professor in my department had been gone for all my other practice talks, but he wanted to see my practice talk. So I gave it just to him, which is the worst possible scenario, right? Yeah. One-on-one to a, pro- a senior professor that you don't know that well. And he hated it at the end. He was fidgeting the whole time at the end. He said, you know what I mean? I was so bored. I just wanted to get up and slam your laptop shut. And that oh was the last God. thing before I flew to my job interview. So like that could happen and everything can still be. Okay. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> Wait, okay, one last really small thing is when you're giving your talk, if there's somebody in the audience you can find who like looks engaged and happy, yeah. just look at them the whole time. Yeah. Because there's a lot of people who have like they they can be engaged and into it, but like, it. like they can look like they are going to fall asleep. Yeah. And so you just need to find that like one. For me that was Becky Allen. Becky Allen, if you ever <laughs> listen to this podcast, you really like made my job yeah. talk a way more enjoyable experience. Yeah. So let's talk about Q&A a little bit after mm-hmm. the talk, because I think that's also really important. And that's, so I have very mixed feelings about how the Q&A gets used in decisions, because I feel like I've seen times when it goes off the rails a little bit for reasons that I feel shouldn't matter that much. But then, and then in other times I felt like it, so I'm, I'm personally inconsistent on this. I think the thing with the Q&A is you have to take it seriously. Mm-hmm. You have to take every question seriously, respond substantively to them. Um, you know, part of what you're signaling is just that you're going to take the people in this department seriously yeah. and their ideas seriously. Um, I think if you don't understand or you're not sure you understand what someone's asking, it's okay to sort of like repeat it back and say, so is what you're asking this or, or you know, in your own words? Um, and, and this is another thing that, you should practice is like as part of practicing your job talk make sure that like people ask you questions Mm -hmm. like Q&A questions so you kind of because it's probably there's going to be certain questions that are likely to come up over and over again Um, but I do feel like a lot of times people when I I see later on you know in in search committees or other places people 
put a lot on the Q&A in terms of just like, you know, like how did this person sort of respond to stuff? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think Q&A matters a lot, whether it should or not. And I think you need to practice your job talk with people outside your area of psych, um, because most of the questions you're going to get are going to be from people outside your area. And it, and like sometimes it's actually become, when you take a step back, it's really obvious. So for personality psychologists, I got asked several times, like, do traits even exist? Or what would Walter mm-hmm. Michelle say? Or things like that. Which if I had just given my practice talk to social personality people, or at UT anyway, um, I wouldn't necessarily have pre- prepared my answer to that question. Yeah, yeah and I think you... It's important not to be defensive. Mm-hmm. Um, it's important. Uh, it's also important to understand norms, like business school norms and psych department norms are very different. And in business schools, it's like blood sport. It's mm-hmm. like your job up there. Like people feel that their job. First of all, in a business school, they won't let you get through your first fucking slide. But mm-hmm. uh, um, they feel like it's their job to like trip you up. Yeah. And they expect you to fight back. And in psych departments, it's not. And so it's important to sort of understand those norms. Um, So you don't want to seem defensive. Uh, You know your work has limitations, too. It's okay to acknowledge them up to a point. You don't want to undercut yourself or, like, say, yeah, everything I just told you is crap. Um, But, you know, I think you you have to sort of be like a reasonable intellectual, which is probably what you are, um, but it's really hard to channel that mm-hmm. when you're standing in front of a room. Yeah. So don't be defensive, but another common thing I see, and again, this is not fair and it shouldn't be this way, but don't be meek. Like, if someone says something and you disagree yeah. with them and they're characterizing your field in a way that you think is not right, stand up for your field, but again, yeah. in a non-defensive way, but look at it as an opportunity. Like, yeah, okay, great, you disagree, let's let's like hash this out. Here's why I think that it's like this. I think, I think this is more important if you're young and probably if you're female and maybe if you're minority, but, like, I think sometimes... I don't know. I felt this way in some of my Q&As. Like, the older white dudes were kind of challenging me to see if I would stand up to them and, like, hold my own and defend my research against, you know, their kind of, like, really superficial, like, dismissive question. But they, that, they weren't actually... I don't think in every case they were being dismissive or they believed the dismissive argument. They just wanted to see how I reacted to it. So I think it's hard to thread that needle, but you don't want to be defensive, but you also don't want to just cave if someone asks yeah. a question that's like unfair or dismissive or something like that. Definitely, yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So should we talk about meetings? Yeah. You're going to have a shit ton of meetings. Yeah. Uh, you're going to... So, you know, a typical... I mean, maybe we should just give sort of the overview because people may not know how this works. So, like, typically you get invited out for... You know, people call it the job interview, but really it's usually, like, it's two days. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is typical, and there's going to be variations in on the all US this, right? And in the U.S. and Canada. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're going to be there for two... Usually two full days or a day and most of a second. Um, as part of that, you're going to give a job talk, which is usually a roughly an hour-long talk or a little less than an hour talk plus Q&A, so it might be an hour and a half totals. But you're going to have a job talk. You're going to have meetings with quite a few faculty in the department. Usually one-on-one. Usually, Yeah, usually one-on-one meetings. Um, you're going to have a meeting with the department head, which is often a little different than the other ones. Yeah. Sometimes you'll meet with a dean. Yeah. Um, you're going to have... Most of the time, you'll have something with graduate students. Yeah. It, it will tend not to be one-on-one. It'll typically be like a lunch or uh-huh. a group meeting or something. Um, and then there are other sort of things that can happen. Sometimes you'll meet with like... So, sometimes you might meet with some staff. That's unusual, but that can happen. That happened to me once, um, which was super interesting. It was the IT 
person. Mm-hmm. And I, it turned out, somebody told me this in advance, that uh, the IT person in this department was somebody everybody really respected and liked. And so <laughs> this was somebody, and so, you know, uh, um, like take everything seriously, right? Um, you can also... Some departments will have a meeting with like their executive committee. It's unusual, but that happens. Often it has its own expectations. This is all stuff to ask, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what, who am I going to be meeting mm-hmm. with? What's going to happen? So sometimes there's also a second talk, which we should probably talk about a little bit. But yeah. these are all the things. So let's talk about the, the faculty meetings. Like, yeah. what, uh, what, sh- what do you think people should know going into those? My, my strategy for faculty meetings was um, I knew my schedule, like... A couple of days in advance, I think, I got the schedule, and I think that would be typical, or at least you'll get your schedule when you're there. And for everyone who was, like, who I was going to meet with, I knew, like, enough about their research to, like, sort of, like, know their area and know maybe, like, one or two points of connection with my research. Um, And I had that written down. Like, I had a cheat sheet, basically, in my pocket. And I would just, like, look at that cheat sheet before each meeting. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes if I couldn't look at that cheat sheet, like, because I was... You're always with someone. Mm -hmm. So, like, I would, like, go to the bathroom so I could look at it. Yeah. By the way, yeah, go to the bathroom every chance you get. Yeah. Oh, man. They'll run you from meeting to meeting. Yeah. I did the cheat sheet thing, too. And so I had, you know, the name of the person and then, like, two keywords to associate with them to trigger my memory about what they did. But that still... I still blanked in a few meetings and then I think it's okay as long as by the end of the meeting you have a chance to show so like there were sometimes where like I sat down with the person and I was like I can't remember what they do I can't remember what they do and so I'll say like can you remind me real quick like what your area is and I'll be like oh I study like child attachment and I'll be like oh yeah you had that paper where you had the mothers come in or whatever not that I read their papers I read their abstracts but that was enough like I read like four or five abstracts for each person I was going to meet with if they weren't in my area and then I always, even if I blanked at the beginning of the meeting, by the end of the meeting, I had a chance to show that I'd done my research. So yeah. it's okay. You're stressed. You're under yeah. so much pressure. You're in uncomfortable clothes and shoes. It's okay if you're like, I'm sorry, I'm blanking right now. Like, can you remind me a little bit about what you do? Yeah. Because if you did do your homework, it'll show eventually. Yeah. And yeah, I, I would say like people in your area or whatever, if you're interdisciplinary, people that are sort of closely connected to what you do, I think there's usually an expectation that you're going to know yeah. coming in. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you get a little further out, like, you know, when, when I interview like systems neuroscience people, like I actually had a systems neuroscience person once come into my job and like ask me a bunch of specific questions about a chapter I'd written, which uh-huh. was like, holy shit, this person did their homework, mm-hmm. but I'm totally not expecting or holding it against someone who's like super far from my area. But I think it is like, it's, it's good to sort of have done a little bit of reading, looked at at least like, their their web page to know what they're about or looked at a couple abstracts and then people close to you but then the thing that really surprised me when I was on the job market was how little uh relative to my expectations how little substance there was on average with huge variability right in so those meetings you mean? in those meetings yeah so sometimes like there were a couple people that walk in and they immediately started grilling me about my research, which was kind of what I thought every meeting was going to be. But a lot of them, even sometimes with people sort of close to my area, I'd walk in and they'd be like, so, uh, Hey, what, what can I tell you? And they'd, they'd kind of start with, uh, or they'd just start talking about something random or whatever. 
So sometimes a lot you you get asked to ask questions a lot in those That's meetings. That's a good point. That's and so having your questions ready questions. Um, is really important. And you can ask the same questions of multiple people. Like yeah. don't ask exactly the same questions of everybody, but it, it's totally fine yeah. to have a few yeah. questions that you ask of most people. Yeah. I think the questions. Think about the questions as a way of showing, showing what you're curious about. What and your so, priorities are. Yeah, like asking about resources is good, like, you know, things that you need, like, you know, how's the subject pool here, so, yeah. asking about the students, asking about... Asking uh, about, like, how people get along, even though yeah. obviously you're not going to get an honest answer, it's a <laughs> signal that you care about that, yeah. if you do. And I yeah. think there maybe is, you can tell something about yeah. the way people yeah. respond. Yeah. Yeah. Also, if there are people that are really, really close to what you do, so not only like absolutely do your research, know their stuff really, really well, but maybe even consider mentioning it in the job talk. So like if you're talking like I'm talking about self-other agreement research and you know Rick Robbins is in the audience, it would look really weird for me to pretend that yeah. I'm not building on what he's done when he's in the yeah. audience. So what I, yeah, what I would say about that is yes, but you have to be I've seen that go wrong a yeah. couple of ways. So one is uh when it seems suck up yeah. So you want to make sure it's an actual, like, relevant... Me- I've yeah, seen people yeah. just, like, throw it. out mentions of people. Yeah. Uh, actually, I was at a job talk once when I was in graduate school where uh, the person giving the job talk um, said, uh, you know, as, as related to the research by... And they named somebody and they pointed to someone in the audience who wasn't that no, person, yeah, and yeah. that was bad. No, oh. I'm talking about when it's, like, literally someone that you you know their work, you've cited them a lot, you're building yeah. on what they're doing, etc. Yeah. The other thing that I would say that it can go wrong is if you... I would say mention their work, but don't... Unless you're really sure, don't say in the job talk that you're looking forward to collaborating with them. Yeah, because no. if you don't know, if they're, like... If it turns out they're the big asshole, or they've yeah. turned into dead wood, right. or they're whatever... It just seems, it can seem kind of, or, or maybe none of those, but they're just like, it can seem a little presumptuous. Yeah, yeah. So. It should anyway, be like yeah. a very side comment, not even yeah. a full sentence, but yeah. just acknowledging that they exist yeah. and you're building on their mm-hmm. work. Okay. I have one comment to make about meetings with bigwigs. Yeah. Um, which is just that. So like deans and yeah. department chairs and stuff. Yeah. I had a meeting with an associate dean on my one job interview, which was at Alabama, obviously. Um, and I did not know what that job was. And I didn't know, like, what this meeting was going to be like. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, thankfully, I think, although, like, maybe ideally you would ask someone else, I asked the search chair, like, hey, what should I talk about with the associate dean? Uh, Yeah, ideally you would would know that ahead of time. Um, But it was really good that I asked him that because... So I think he suggested that I could ask about... um, like the tenure process and expectations. He also suggested asking about sort of like the standing of the psychology department within the college and, you know, there, you know, find out things that you could ask these people before you go. Because the first thing that happened was I, I stepped into this big intimidating office and was sitting in front of this really intimidating woman. And she was like, so what do you want to know? Yeah. And so if I didn't like, I could have really embarrassed myself. Yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah, I think the, so the, the, purpose of those sort of bigwig meetings so you'll is it can vary some and you don't know what they're looking for but typically like the things they're going to be concerned with are you know things related to sort of institutional kinds of things so things related to money and resources so so and this is sort of tricky because you do not want to get into negotiating your startup there's a general rule which is like don't negotiate until there's an offer on the table mm. but they're they're going to be curious sort of like 
in a general categorical sense, what sorts of things you do and resources, right? That often comes up. And so, like, if you do psychophys and saying, like, yeah, I'm going to need a psychophys suite, or if you do fMRI, or if you do big data and you need servers or whatever, categorically talking about those things is often part of what they're interested in. Because they want kind of a heads up so that if you get the offer they know sort of what they're in for. So that's one kind of My thing. My impression is that it's mostly a throwaway meeting for new assistant professors. Like, it, it can't, there's not a lot that can happen in that meeting yeah. that's going to change things yeah. one way or the other. I mean, you don't want to fuck it up, but I don't think for, for new assistant professors, I don't think the dean is going to weigh in very much on the yeah. decision, yeah. and I don't that's think good. you're going to learn very much from the dean yeah. that's going to influence your decision should you get an offer, yeah. although you might. But mostly it's just something to get through. Yeah. That's how I saw it at the I think time. The, the dean, that's true. I think the department chair the department is different. Is, yeah. is different. Definitely. And and there's some overlap, but but I agree. Like our dean actually last year, there were so many searches in the in the natural sciences that our dean said they were going to not meet with people. Um, and I think that's a good that that's um, indicative yeah. of what you're saying. I think that, the reason you have deans meet with job candidates, especially junior job candidates, is just to show that your university takes the candidates yeah, seriously yeah. enough to make time in the dean's very yeah. busy yes. schedule. And that's yeah. basically it. I mean, it, if you do end up there, then if your dean has a positive impression of you, that could matter. It yeah. affect your raises and so on. So make a good impression. But yeah. besides that, I don't think it matters too much. The department chair meeting absolutely yeah. is important. Yeah. So what else? Like, I think, yeah, they're going to be interested in if you're, I mean, we're mostly pitching this towards like people on the job market for the first time, but if you're like a few years into an assistant job and this is your second job, they might want to talk about like timing of tenure, those kinds yeah. of things, mm-hmm. right? Um, Whether you have any interest in becoming a leader in your department, things yeah. like that. Yeah, so like, right. But again, that's not going to come up if it's, you're right. straight out of grad school, probably, but grants, I think, yeah. is something that. Oh, could yeah. come up in any meeting, but tends to come up especially because th- these are the people that see the budget, and yeah. so they're going to want to know, and they, they're they have, they're the ones pulling the purse strings on startups, yeah. and and so that, so I think a good question to be ready to answer in any meeting, but especially in one of these, is like what kinds of grants are you going to apply for, yeah. and so if you can name. Uh, um, if you can name agencies, programs, if you can say, like, they're, you know, oh, yeah, like, you know, in the last NSF strategy thing, whatever, they talked about my, you can tell how prepared I am for this, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the NSF does these things and these other things, but being able to, like, to just sort of speak or to say, like, oh, yeah, I've, or maybe more from the idea side, but, like, mm-hmm. I've got this idea, like, yeah. the first grant I apply to is going to be such mm-hmm. and such. Right. Um, I think that's pretty important. Yeah. And then so, one more aspect of... Uh, do you have more on that? No, I was going to... One more aspect of the interview is the social parts. So, like, the dinner. Oh, sometimes there's, awesome. like, yeah. more, like, informal get-togethers either. Yeah. So there's lunch with the grad students, or sometimes there's, like, post- or pre-dinner yeah. drinks with people. Um, and you're still on, and that yes. matters. And, and that also applies to the staff comment. Like, yes. peop- the faculty in, will talk to the staff, and if you treat the staff badly, even in the emails before planning your visit, that will get and back to people. And grad students as well. But, yeah, there's, the there's, lunch with the grad students, you're on. Yeah. Like, those things yeah, matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there's a part of me that wants to not give this advice simply because right, I, right, the people right. that are dicks to staff, I yeah, kind of yeah, hope yeah. they are so yeah. that we don't hire them. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, no, it's be take everything seriously. Treat everyone like a serious person because yeah. they are. And then the, like, so the social parts, it can be awkward because it doesn't feel like an interview anymore. Like, there's alcohol, there's, you know, people, maybe the faculty themselves are saying things that are inappropriate. Sometimes they'll ask you things that are illegal or inappropriate. Um, And it sucks that you have to prepare for that, but I would consider preparing for that. When I was on the job market, I wasn't, I didn't drink, I didn't drink for most of my 20s, and... 
um, I, I was really uncomfortable and, and now being on the other side of it, I think I was completely justified in being, not wanting people to know that I didn't drink. Cause like the comments I hear about like what people think of people who don't drink are kind of appalling. Um, so I would like order a drink or like let them pour me some wine and then like pretend to sip it or something like that. And you don't, you don't have to do that. It should be fine to just say that you're not drinking for whatever reason. I mean, come on, there's so many reasons why someone might not drink that it's ridiculous for people to judge you, but all these things might come up. So um, let's let's just step back and set the stage here. So as part of the interview process, you're there for two days, is you're going to go out to dinner twice, mm-hmm. most likely. Um, maybe three times, depending when you come in, whatever. Um, these dinners are the... Usually it's three or four-ish faculty from the department, sometimes one of the grad students, if there's a grad student rep on the committee. Um, they take you to a nice restaurant. Um, it's... It's faculty going out on somebody else's dime. So, and the the purpose is to sort of, well, the, the, you know, the, it sort of superficially seems social, but it's part of the interview process. Um, so they're going to have, you're going to have dinner. It might be, there might be quite a bit of casual small talk, not about work, but there also might be a lot of follow-up. You know, one of the things about scheduling that often happens is like your job talk might come pretty late in the process just because that's how their schedule works. And so it may be for some of the people there, they may have had their meeting with you already, but it was before your job talk and they want to follow up. So, so there could be a lot of business, you know, work stuff discussed at dinner. But yeah, I think a lot of times it's for the, for the faculty, it's like, oh, I get to go out to dinner on the dean's dime. Yeah. So we're going to order cocktails and a bottle of wine mm-hmm. and we're going to like, you know, gossip, about gossip and, and we're going to treat this like a social event. And you're, you're sitting there in your uncomfortable clothes, probably the best dressed person at the table, yeah. uh, and, and the youngest person often And often, and often the, the only woman, and then the waiter comes over, and because you're the only woman, they make you order first, and you don't know if people are ordering starters or not, yes. and you're like 25 so, yeah. years old, and everyone else is 45, and it's, yeah. It's so, just, so, you, so. So, you, so you can order a starter and an entree. Yeah, um, that's typically typical. people do, yeah. Uh, um, and, and I would say, like, yeah, so, so I think the... So I appreciate what you're saying. I think the alcohol thing, if you don't drink, is important. And it's it, there's this is another one of those things where, like, you might be put in a shitty situation. I, I would say, like, you have to decide what your comfort zones are. And it's good to just think in advance. Like, are, if you don't drink, are you going to order a drink and pretend to sip it to be polite? Or are you just going to politely refuse? I would say, like, you know better than we do sort of your specific yeah. values. I'm not and, at all advocating that other people should do yeah, that. Yeah, but, but sort of knowing in advance. And then the the awkward questions, I think, is important to be prepared for. Yeah. Because people shouldn't be asking things like, are you married? Do you have kids? Um, it does happen. Or and, they don't ask directly, but that's clearly what they're getting at yeah. sometimes. Mm-hmm. And it's so, so the, and the problem with it is that one, well, there's many problems. Um, you don't know why they're asking. Um, and sometimes it's like they want to know if you have kids because they want to tell you how awesome the schools are if you do, but they don't want to bore you if you don't. And they, yeah. it doesn't occur to them that, dude, do not be asking this question. Yeah, yeah I think that happens So sometimes it's that, but sometimes it's there are all kinds of stereotypes that mostly work for men and against women. Like, are um, we going to have to deal with the fucking two-body problem? Yeah, and That's yeah. often what they're thinking, that's... and that sucks, and it's illegal, and they should... I mean, I've been yeah. in search committees where people literally bring that up, and I have to, like, say, hey, we're not allowed to talk about that. Yeah. Like, either this candidate deserves the offer, or they don't, and yeah. we can't talk about, like, are they likely to take it because they have a yeah. partner who does blah, blah, blah. So I, I would say I don't have a universal answer for how exactly to deal with it, because it's 
personal, what I would say is one, if you're on the side that's going to be advantaged by that, you should be thinking about this too. Don't, don't just yeah. like, if you're a, a like straight white dude listening to all this, like just think about the fact that you're going to benefit from some of these. It doesn't mean you don't answer or whatever, but, uh, it's something to think about, but I'd say for everyone, um, just anticipate that this stuff could be asked and you, and decide in advance. Like if I get asked, if I'm married, how am I going to respond? If I get asked if I have kids, how am I going to respond? I have a funny story about this. Not that helpful, but when I interviewed at WashU and I had lunch with the grad students, I was like 25, 26 years old and I was their age and they were asking me if I was in a relationship and I said no. And I went to the bathroom and I was in the bathroom and I was like, I just started dating this guy. What if it turns into a relationship? And by the time <laughs> I move here, I'm in a relationship. And then I say that it started before this interview, then they're going to think I was lying. So I literally went back to the table and clarified for them that actually I'm not in a relationship, but there is this guy I'm dating. Like, yeah. It's so Hilarious. embarrassing in retrospect, but I just, I was so worried that they would think I had lied to them. Yeah. It's crazy, but they weren't supposed to ask, but they didn't know that. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So this is another thing. If you're listening to this and you're on a search committee, just yes. tell everybody, remind everybody not to ask these questions. And not and to re- beat around the bush for it either. Yeah, like, yeah. Um, so other, uh, so I, what I would say, we, we're focusing on a lot of negatives, and I think it's important, but what I'd also say about all of this stuff, the dinner, the meetings, the job talk even, is like, <laughs> this is going to sound so bad coming at the end of this, but it's true, is like, try to have fun it is fun though like it sounds insane like we've been talking about like a million things that you should like keep in mind and like all of these different like like ways to you know prepare and how much time you need to spend and stuff like that but like i i mean i only had one interview experience so i don't know but like it was really fun for me like i I got to like talk to all of these people who were really friendly which i think is probably not unusual mm-hmm. about like my research and then like giving the talk was like as you guys said like way more fun than any of the practice talks um you know a lot of the t- i mean if they've invited you to come for an interview they're like excited about you they want to like you they want to like picture you as part of their department so you're going to deal with a lot of people who are like being really like warm and friendly and then yeah you get to like you get to go to a new place you get to like go out for free meals like there are a lot of aspects of it that are really fun it's exhausting yeah i mean yeah so so i think it's good to know the ways it can go wrong but there are a lot of ways it can go right and yeah like one of the things that's really sort of disjointing when you're a graduate student is you're used to being the low status person and you're used to not being taken seriously and you say the same shit you say back home and people look at you like you just said something profound and you know you're like what the fuck is going on because to them you're like uh like a potential colleague or you're you, they, they're impressed enough that they're like seriously considering making you yeah. one of them and so they're viewing you as like a peer who they might you know give a job to um and so it's kind of cool because they're like they yeah like there's gonna be the old fart who asks you a tough question is grumpy and whatever but a lot of them they're just like they think your stuff is cool because they had 200 applications and mm-hmm. they picked four people mm-hmm. yeah. to come interview. Uh, and they're trying yeah. to sell you on their yes. place, too. They're, like, worried that you're not going to come if they make you an offer and so on. So, and that's another thing is if you do, if as you're interviewing you really like the place, let them know that. Yeah. Like, so yeah this feel like I'm really impressed and, you know, I've met, like, these people that I really enjoyed talking to mm-hmm. I could imagine working with. So especially if it's in a not desirable location, I think there's a very strong correlation. I remember interviewing for a job in New York City and they were not at all worried that I would not yeah. come if I got an offer. Yeah. But in other places, they were. And that matters a lot. Yeah. yeah. 
And so, yeah, I think uh, afterwards, thank you notes are important. Yeah, like, like emails, you mean? Yeah, well, yeah, I think nowadays emails are fine. I think traditionalists like notes better. I hardly ever get physical notes anymore, but I have gotten them no, once I or didn't twice. Know. And uh, they're like, I would, I prefer emails. Really? Okay. <laughs> I, I, I was like really impressed that somebody sent me a handwritten note. Yeah. Uh, when I was on the job market like 15 years ago, it was all, I did handwritten wow. notes. But, but I think an email, but I think some kind of a like, thank you, it doesn't have to be super long but it, it should be sort of, you know, I think a thank you that, like, references one specific thing is sort of like, hey, thanks for meeting me. I really enjoyed talking about and then yeah. what we talked about. Um, there are also ways to either directly or indirectly let a place know if they're your top choice, especially yeah. after interviewing. That can mean a lot. Yeah. Don't bluff. Do not say that to more than one place. But, like, either your advisor might know people and be able to let them know, like, hey, this person, my, God, my student was really, really impressed and, like, I think this would be, like, their top choice. Or And whether or not to say that explicitly, like, it could, you could lose some leverage in negotiation and so on. But there's still ways to let people know if you were really impressed. That's, that makes mm-hmm. it, like, yeah. believable and... Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean it's easy I think as the candidate to forget that like yeah, they sometimes the places that, yeah. are insecure and they yeah, they really want to know that you're going to come and sometimes the places do crazy things like you know, Not like yeah, because they they think for whatever harebrained reason that the person won't stay or they won't come or yeah. whatever. So, yeah. So, okay. So let's say up. what if you yeah, we need to we need to wrap up. So maybe let's not get deep into negotiations per se but let's just kind of like what if you get the offer a couple basic things one is do not say yes on the phone i have a friend (laughs) who will remain nameless uh who sent our advisor through the roof when she got a job offer and she said yes i'll take it to the department (laughs) chair who called her up to offer the job (laughs) and the department chair uh was very nice and said you know that's not how this works (laughs) 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 but uh say be Express all the excitement that you have, uh, but don't say yes on the phone. Mm-hmm. Um, get startup packages from people who have yeah. been through the process recently who have similar things to you. Be ready for sticker shock at what you're supposed to ask for. It will seem insane, mm-hmm. um, but you should ask for it. Uh, um, I can't do this in like one minute or less. I think we need to do a whole nother. Okay, we're gonna do. We'll, we'll let's. Yeah, I think that's good. Let's do. Let's don't do say yes on the phone. Don't, don't say don't yes say on the phone. phone yeah. What happens next will be a. Future, don't say no on episode. the phone either. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that's that's good. We'll talk. We got people. We're putting this out early September. People have a little bit of time. We should definitely do that in the future. All right. We'll save negotiations for some other time. Is there anything else we missed? I think that's it. Have fun and good luck to And I mean, if you do get an interview already, like, that's huge. Like, that's so hard just to get an interview. Yeah. And don't be bummed if you don't get any. That happens. Plenty of people go on the market, get no interviews, go on the market again in the future and get something great. Or if you get one, you get an interview, but you don't get an offer. That's totally It often takes a couple of tries. Um, Even, I know some, some, some people who are amazing researchers who it took them three years on the job market. Yeah. And it's okay if you don't want to do that, if you yeah. give up or you like leave, yeah. but it's also totally fine to do that. It's, you shouldn't be embarrassed if that's what it takes to get an academic job. Yeah. Cool. Well, I think we killed it. Uh, <laughs> kill, I don't know, killed it in the sense of like, did awesome, but killed it, like, it in the sense we beat it to, we beat it to Yes, that's what, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> well, thank you everybody for listening to our uh, first and hopefully not last Everybody in the Same Room at the Same Time uh, podcast. We want to thank everybody who subscribes, everybody who rates us on iTunes. 
Um, if you want to send us a letter, you can email us, letters at theblackgoatpodcast.com. We're on Twitter, at blackgoatpod. We're on Facebook, if you just type Black Goat into your search bar. And uh, we will see you next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.